podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. As we make deep contact with the internal space of our body, we connect with our essential nature. We realize our authentic self as vast, clear, unbounded space. The more fully we open to the absolute stillness of this fundamental consciousness, the more freely the movement of life takes place. Non-dual realization is an actual transformation of our being, not just a change in our beliefs. It's not that we know non-duality, It is that we are non-duality. Judith Blackstone, Realization Process Founder. In this episode, Valeria Tellez interviews Michael Leiden. He is a Realization Process Advanced Practitioner. Realization Process is a form of body-focused meditation for spiritual growth, transformative healing, and embodied wholeness. Michael holds full certification from Judith Blackstone in all three realization process trainings, including embodiment, meditation, and healing ground. Michael also holds additional certification in realization process for advanced trauma repair. Michael offers guided realization process practices for awakening and healing via Zoom and in person for those in the greater Boston area. Michael specializes in helping individuals find deep well-being at the core of their body and release stress-based holding patterns related to limiting beliefs or trauma. To read Michael's full biography, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Here's the interview with Michael Leiden. In your own words... Who is Michael Leiden? Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a warm-up question. You know, we could say things like, well, I had uh, parents who with ethnicities from Western Europe, and uh, I, uh, I'm a social worker. You know, I would say, like, who I am and what I am. I would say that, like, my domain, like, something that I've really, really been interested in my whole life is uh, spirituality and healing, how we can integrate that with our, let's say, Western uh, psychological and also scientific view of the world. Yeah, I would say that that's 
But I would say I'm a social worker and like a, a bigger circle around that is a real, realization process practitioner. And outside of that, like I would say I'm a healer. I do define that way or that's what I, I would say I aspire to be. But uh, have you heard this term contemplative, a contemplative? Yes. Yeah. So I would say that I am something like, I don't know, if I could give you a summary, it's it's where the domains of healing and being a like a spiritual contemplative and let's say an explorer of consciousness, where, where all those three domains intersect, uh, that's where I feel I, I live. That's wonderful. Thank you. You just inspired me to ask in a different way that question. Maybe I can ask my guests, um, if you could replace your name with another word, what would that be? Uh, do you want me to answer that one? Yes. Yeah. It's uh, so interesting. So yeah. So if I could replace my name with another word. Yeah. <laughs> probably something like if it were like a familiar, if it had to be a familiar word, even though I'm not a doctor, it might be something, something like, you know, hey, doc. <laughs> That's cute. Why? <laughs> well, just like, I don't know what, what is the, what's the shorthand for uh, like a healer or somebody in the healing yeah, it's not something like that. It's it's like when with you know for native peoples, was there some sort of shorthand way that they could refer to like the town shaman or something? You know, it's probably the equivalent of hey doc. <laughs> I love that, Mister Healing. Not not even healer because healer now implies that you must have some background that you have been through some sort of education process, experiences, and all that to become to call yourself a healer. So I think. Just the word healing. Why not? Like some people would say, I'm love. I am joy. I'm peace. Beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, Mr. Mr. Healing, that, that <laughs> worked because I guess it would refer to things that I know, but it would also refer to things that I'm trying to do for myself also. You know, I'm because we're all on a healing journey of one one form or another, in yes. my view. Yes, yeah, so true. So true. So true. So my first question is: what is consciousness? And what is the difference between consciousness and awareness? Oh boy, yeah. Consci- the difference between consciousness and awareness, it, that really depends on the author that's talking about consciousness and awareness. But my, like, if I were to use those terms, I would use them in the following way. Awareness is a broader quality, let's say, or faculty. So when we talk about consciousness... Uh, it's sort of like more specific, right? Consciousness of something. That's generally how we use the term consciousness when we talk about consciousness. Like, because consciousness sort of has this connotation of uh, cognizance of, right? Cognizance of something. And we can make further qualification like object-oriented consciousness, non-object-oriented consciousness, right? We can make those qualifications also. And so we talk about awareness. To me, that's like a little bit broader, that might be more the direction of like non-object oriented consciousness or con- consciousness that is not object focused, something like that. But, you know, the, you, we can use those words uh, interchangeably also, depending on how we, uh, we qualify them. But a lot of times, med- like meditation teachers will say, well, just, uh, you know, rest in choiceless awareness. That's like a, what do you call it? A mindfulness type technique, right? Or Buddhist meditation type technique. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? The world's greatest need. So I, I feel like what you're asking me is like, what is the linchpin of 
all of humanity's problems. Because in my view, humans are probably the most dangerous species out there. <laughs> That's funny. All right. <laughs> Humanity is the danger, most dangerous species to planet Earth. I don't think I'm saying anything that controversial uh, by saying that. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> what is the world's greatest need? For human beings to be more conscientious. I'm using that word deliberately because it means both to be conscious or aware and to like to have a notion of what is appropriate action like uh conscientious and so that's that's a broad question like what is humanity's greatest need or what is the world's greatest need i'm sorry and uh the world's greatest need i would say for humans to become more conscientious because i think that you know maybe neglecting the environment poisoning the environment let's say or doing things to hurt one another i've come from a place of maybe lack of conscientiousness in some way. Yeah, right. So a conscientious person would be somebody who is aware of the environment. So he or she is not causing any harm to the environment or hurting people, others. I interviewed a um, Buddhist monk and he kept talking about non-harming. That's really where we want to be. I guess seeing the bigger picture, something like that, that's kind of what I mean also. And part part of that is not like on a spiritual level, we could say we're all one. On an ecological level, we could talk about just seeing how we affect each other and other species and the planet and just be having awareness of all of that. I notice when I ask this question to people in general, my guests, and then also people that I interview on the street, most people say love. The world's greatest need is love. I think that's in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do agree. And so here's one thing I think that could be added to that. I have a sense of what that is, but it's very different from what my teenage self thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you could answer that question. What is love to you today? What is love today? Interesting. I, I think that love is action that comes from a deep integrated place of awareness. I think that it, it's a quality that we experience as, uh, you could say, warmth, tenderness, uh, desire for other beings to be well, I would say. And it's also just based on, I guess, based on this deep interconnectedness that we can that we can experience with uh, with other beings. Do you believe in God? Yes, I would say yes. Yeah, I do. Like when we're talking about God, what what do you mean by God? Yeah, that's my next question to you. So if you, when you say I believe in God, who is God to you? If we're talking about God, we're talking about to me because like God refers to so there's sort of like this uh you could say you talk you could talk about God as like um a cons like a, a conceptualization within different uh you know religious or spiritual traditions but there's also like an experience that we can have of some underlying intelligence that's behind our in all of our experience and perhaps all of you know all of nature the, the whole the whole universe and so that's the type of God that I I would say um, I believe in and maybe have some, you know, some I've had some glimpses of experiencing, you know, some aspect of that, perhaps. 
Mm. So would you say that God is a divine intelligence, that it is in all things? So when we're talking about God, right, we're talking about whatever gave birth to the universe to begin with. That, I think, is what most people, when we're talking about God, we're talking about the thing that started it all, or the, the being or intelligence that started it all. And certainly that the, the presence of that um, intelligence is there. I mean, it's there in nature. It's there in um, the, the order or like the, the mathematical structure of the universe. It's there in the human body. It's there as an energy that you can feel. Um, it's all of that. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. What is your experience with that intelligence, with that divine intelligence on a daily basis? On a daily basis? <laughs> Sometimes it's anger or annoyance. <laughs> yeah, right. Why not? Yeah. There's a quote that I really like, which is that God tells us nothing but shows us everything. I wish I could remember where I found that. I mean, we could probably Google it. I really like it too, because I feel like the more profound things that I've learned in my life, I really had to like effort them in a way. <laughs> I had to work hard. So there's sort of a paradox with, you know, I know you talk about uh, non-dual realization or um, awakening, enlightenment, whatever, you know, term we want to give to that. So there's, there's a paradox whereby you are realizing something that's fundamental and that's already there. And at the same time, it takes a good deal of work to realize it. So it's, you can't just say something like, hey, God, can you please um, just uh, give me this experience? Maybe sometimes that works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Really, really, really open and asking and really, you know, uh, you just go all out in whatever prayer or ritual that you're doing. But most of the time it doesn't work. <laughs> in my experience, it's there. And a lot of times it's different uh, layers of conditioning or thought, belief, um, somatic uh, and energetic holding that are sort of locking us out of that mm. experience. Maybe God, whatever we call God, it's here now. It's, uh, it's being expressed in every way. In the most beautiful experiences we have and in the worst ones, it's everything. Yeah, I think, okay, so th there's a contemplative author named uh, Bernadette Roberts. And I feel like she, she influenced my thinking a, a good deal, at least around, let's say, the contemplative domain, right? There is an element, and when she talked about faith, it's not like you believe something because you're kind of afraid and you're just, you're just clinging to an idea that helps you sleep better at night. It's not exactly that. So faith and the way that I think about faith is sort of like this trust in a deep feeling sense of something that you know, but you don't know how you know it. Yes, like a knowledge that you can't find the source for that knowledge. You have it, but you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you have it. You don't, you couldn't pin down exactly where it came from. We could call it like a deep seated intuition or something like that. So in that sense, I feel like my faith or trust is that love upholds all the darkness or light upholds all the darkness in the world there, there is something we could say maybe an important lesson in all of it or something important to learn or you know evolution like uh, growth and adaptation all, all of those things whatever we get in life there there is a very very deep we could say aspect of the universe aspect of all that is that 
is there supporting us if we are able to tune into it. So that leads to my next question. What do you think the main purpose and meaning of life is? The meaning of life is to check in with your most deeply seated sense of intuition and discernment about what you need to do with your life and live from that. That takes attention yeah, and awareness. So moving on to the second part of the interview, and this is now about realization process, meditation. When I say realization process, this is capital R and capital P because it was created by Judith Blackstone. Is that correct, Mike? A lot of it was just her own creation, self-experimentation. And what realization process is, it's, I would call it an embodiment, an embodiment meditation practice. What terms that Judith uses more often now are embodiment uh, or an attunement practice because we're number one. So let's, let's, let's just unpack embodiment for a minute. Embodiment in this meaning uh, is finding this very, very fine quality of consciousness that seems to pervade not only our, our whole body and our energy system, but also our entire environment, our field of experience. And that field of consciousness has a quality of wholeness and balance um, and a quality of love and uh, supportiveness built into it. She talks about experiencing ourselves as a unified ground of consciousness and ground of being. What is the experience of unified ground of consciousness? Right. So there, there are actually different ways of experiencing that ground. And one of the things about realization process is that we're using our whole body. We could say our, our body, our energy body. Um, and I'll unpack that term too, if you want me to. Yeah, please. So we can talk about three domains of experience. Uh, we can talk about our physical sensations. We can talk about sensations of pulsation and flow that that we can feel going through our body. And this uh, these types of energy sensations are really no stranger to uh, would say we could say that Western psychotherapy is really no stranger to these sensations. Um, it's something that they talk about in Reiki. It's something they talk about in acupuncture. But it's also something that Freud's uh, uh, one of Freud's students, uh, Wilhelm Reich, had talked about as he had observed this in his uh, psychotherapy patients, whereby they would have some big realization or aha moment, and then they would feel energy just streaming through their body. And so this sense of uh, vitality, you know, is something that we can work with a bit more directly. Uh, by just focusing into different areas, feeling our sense of presence. Um, we can, you know, feel different points in the body that feel like they're more lit up with this type of vitality. And all these things are things that we, you know, we talk about in realization process and uh, use in, in, in um, various different meditation practices. And so that's, let's say, the energy domain and the, the, the entire domain of energy sensations that we personally have we could call that our energy body, right? Just as a as type of metaphor or heuristic. Beneath that, right? And so when we think about physical phenomena or energy phenomena, all these phenomena move, right? Even if we think about emotions and thoughts as types of energy, they move, they change, they shift um, through our field of consciousness. 
And beneath that is something that seemingly does not shift or move. It's, it has a sense of aliveness or dynamism to it, but it also has a sense of deep stillness to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. The experience of that, it's not easy to put into words. It's, yeah, it's not. And it's something that it didn't really make sense to me until I experienced it firsthand. And so I think that for people, uh, by the way, what types of people listen to your podcast, would you say? Is it, is it people who are into fitness or people who are into integrative health, people who are into like uh, meditation and yoga, or is it, would you say all, all the above? All the above. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. If I say something like stillness, right, then if we try to like feel stillness, it's like, well, does that mean I sort of have to freeze my body up a little bit (laughs) like a statue? And it's not like that. It's like there's a stillness that's already there without you having to do anything. And it's like when when you sort of dip below all of the things that are going on, it, within your field of consciousness, you experience the qual- the seeming quality of consciousness as such. Consciousness just being consciousness, which uh, has its qualities of stillness, aliveness, and other things that I mentioned. But it's, it's distinct from the feeling of energy as pulsation and flow. It's a different quality of experience. Experiencing the ground of consciousness so what are the methods or the most effective methods to have this kind of experience? Oh, wow. Question of the day. Um, so it sounds like there's two questions, right? Well, you tell me, are you asking what methods within realization process are there to experience this ground or what methods are there? This unified ground of consciousness that she talks about, what are the main methods that a human, that somebody like me could experience? that kind of consciousness. Right. I'll start by saying this. Some meditation methods, what they'll do is say, just let go. And and those can be effective pointers. In realization process, actually, let me, let me take a step back here. So this instruction of, okay, just let everything go and just let everything be as it is, that's like a, a choiceless awareness technique and mindfulness, right? And so it can take some trial and error there to know whether you are just sort of relaxing and kind of going blank or whether you are actually experiencing fundamental consciousness. And so in, in realization process, one of the pointers is that we are releasing from the deepest aspect of ourself versus just the, the surface. But how do we know, right? Because we know we have conscious and unconscious beliefs. So how do we uncover the unconscious? Okay, that sounds like a slightly different uh, question. True. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a question within a question within a question here, yeah, right? <laughs> well, so, so the first question is like, okay, what, what are some realization process techniques for realizing non-duality? Realization process techniques would guide a person to feel present and safe through each part of the body. Okay, that, that's, that's one part of it. And the other thing is then, you know, experiencing different qualities that we can experience in different um, parts of the body. So for instance, uh, we experience love. We can experience love through our whole body, certainly, but we, we can experience it most clearly, most people most of the time in the chest. Experiences of lucidity or clarity, we experience it through the um, internal space of the brain. 
um, the, the pelvic region, we experience our quality of sensuality, sexuality, gender type uh, sensations. And so those are things that we sort of maneuvers that we do in the realization process to kind of unhinder these various different aspects of our personality. And if we do have core beliefs, for instance, I'm not allowed to be, you know, I have to be intellectual, I'm not allowed to be sexual, whatever, something like that, some adaptive strategy that we learned when we were younger, then we will generally have like a a constriction or a holding pattern in some area of the body. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They call it trapped energy, I guess. I interviewed somebody about that. That causes a lot of psychological and physical problems. Yeah, totally. Um, some In some schools, they're called energy blocks. Um, Judith likes to call them holding patterns, uh, which is a, it's a term that I like as well. Constriction sometimes. Uh, and uh, in, uh, in cognitive therapy, uh, it's sometimes called schemas, right? But that take up actually take up residence in the body. Mm, interesting. I'm like, it's so fascinating. One thing that is really fascinating to me is that we cannot constrict any experience, any emotional experience. We can't stop ourselves from having that experience without also constricting some part of our anatomy. Does that make sense? So true. It's true because I feel it. Yeah. Every time I get frustrated and but I also let go of whatever it is because I talk about it. I'm all about communication. I love expressing myself. I think that I'm releasing by communicating using words. But then later on, I find out it's still trapped in the body. Right. And, and so there are techniques within the realization process to release those, let's say, holding patterns at the at like a dimension of our being that to me, and I'm just giving a metaphor, it almost feels like the tectonic plates of the mind, you know, the tectonic plates like underneath the earth that move around. And it's a a metaphor that we could give it, but it feels like the, the, the place where your mind and your energy and your physiology are all just one thing. That's part of what realization process techniques sort of aim to, to sort of reach into and help help one become attuned to. That's interesting because a lot of times I feel like instead of using words to communicate emotions, like what I'm feeling, it's better off just to cry. When I cry, I feel better. It seems like it releases that trapped energy. Yeah, well, it, it, it depends. It can be both and. If I ever got into a disagreement with my partner, I definitely want her to know what was, you know, what was, if something was upsetting me, what was upsetting me and to, to do, if there's any sort of held energy or charge left over from that, I might, you know, do some, some release work, like, um, whether it's crying or with, you know, whatever it had to be in order to let that go. Of, of course. Yeah. What is to be psychologically healed? <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> right, that's... So in order to talk about what it means to be psychologically healed, we have to have a model of what a psychological wound is. Mm. Um, does that make sense? Yes, right. We need to, yeah, now we need the opposite. <laughs> yeah, so we need to define what a, uh, a psychological wound is. I, I think one way that we could conceptualize it is some sort of experience that is painful earlier in life. You know, uh, at some point we had earlier in life, um, some people feel that they had, you know, issues that extend back to past lives also, but, but something that we're experiencing in the present that's tied to the past, tied to an old emotional wound. 
And at the time that we experienced that emotional wound, it meant something, right? There was something that we took from that experience and we said, oh, okay, well, so mom is yelling at me for doing such and such, and I don't seem to be doing anything wrong. But so, so what that means is I have to be hyper vigilant around mom and I can't like, I, I just have to walk on eggshells when I'm around her. I'm going to constrict them, you know, and that's what I'm going to have to do. And so if there are other people later in life that are, that, that mimic mom's behavior in some way, right. Then we might start feeling hyper vigilant around that person. And sometimes we don't even know why, like if we don't have access to that early memory of what might've happened to us, we don't even necessarily understand why we're doing that. But a, a psychological wound that remains usually has also some beliefs, adaptive strategy that help protect us from experiencing that wound again. So there are some methods of healing that are, let's say, counteractive, where we just say, oh, well, just tell yourself that that's not your mom and then you'll be okay, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not that simple, right? <laughs> No, it's, it's really not that simple. I, I guess in my experience, there's it's important for the work to be experiential. It's almost like, there, you know, there's we have this metaphor of like an inner child. It's not important for your adult self to know that, hey, this person at work is not mom. They're not going to, you know, try to hit you or whatever. Um, it's important for that part of us that is still kind of like, childlike and kind of locked away in our unconscious mind, it's important for that part to really like feel safe and like have some sort of, we can say corrective emotional experience, but that's a little pathologizing too, because it makes it sound like we were doing something incorrect by trying to defend ourselves early in childhood, but some sort of transformative emotional experience that allows us to sort of update that aspect of our mind or mind body system that's sort of cut off and frozen does that does that make sense i know i just said a lot no it does yeah but how do they correct how do they update that part of themselves from your perspective as a professional the the, the essence of it and there are multiple examples that that i could give of this but i think the the essence of it is allowing the let's say the hurt part of ourselves to be fully embraced. I mean, that's big part of the essence of it. And within realization process, the, the, the safe, what we could call like holding environment, and it's a term used in therapy to talk about like the, the safe space, uh, often that's uh, fostered within the context of like a therapist and client or uh, within a group setting, the safe space provided by the group. Um, we can think about like Alcoholics Anonymous as a type of holding environment for people. The holding environment within realization process in part comes from touching into that unified ground of being and using that, um, the, the, the love that comes from that, the support that comes from that, uh, the sense of balance. By tuning into that, it's, it helps us feel like a, enough of a resource to then explore those really, really difficult moments of our early development. Because the thing is that, so I know I said before that we need to like, you know, uh, feel and embrace. So one nuance to that is that if we feel something too much, we'll get overwhelmed and then we'll disconnect from the feeling. That's not productive. That, that's re-traumatizing in some way. So 
I guess in for you, right? Like in your healing journey, because you know, in your book, you talk. Can I can I talk about your book? Yes, sure. Yes. <laughs> your mom was pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty intense lady, right? And <laughs> yeah, anxious. <laughs> for making the porridge, and then she was yelling at you, and you were just a kid trying to take care of your younger sister, like. You, you yourself were just a kid. What was it for you that you felt was transformative? I used a lot of escape mechanisms, like the workout, you know, becoming a fitness instructor and competitor, all that. And one day I realized, not consciously, unconsciously, that nothing was working. It was causing more pain and perhaps just building up to the point where I couldn't hold anymore. I couldn't find any more uh, escape mechanisms. I had uh, major depression. That's when you have suicidal thinking and life loses purpose. You know, we don't know what, where to go, what to do, and you just lost. And that's when I realized, I don't know how I did, consciousness did. Um, you're perfect just the way you are. Everything's perfect. There's nothing wrong. Nothing. There's nothing missing. Everything that happened, that is happening, it's how it's supposed to be. It's life. That's when everything changed. Then I could find more meaningful ways of expressing that understanding. And that's when I started writing and doing everything that I've been doing up to this date. Right. Yeah, perfect. And and so one major, major experience that can be a, a real profound healing experience for people is this type of spiritual insight or realization that you're talking about. It's It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You don't you don't know it, but you don't know how you know, but you know. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's there when you need it. That's amazing, right? When you most need it. And it's something that you can, yeah, you can you can feel it and it has this resonance of truth to it. It's like a bedrock, you know? It's deeper than our intellect and our emotions. In the context like of what you asked about before is like, well, how 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 do we, you know, heal these deep things? Having a major realization like that that sort of recontextualizes everything that in and of itself for anybody i think could make their suffering a lot easier to like let's say easier to deal with right and could sort of it's almost like put um uncorking (laughs) or like giving permission for all of this stuff to breathe because it's not bad it's not wrong we're not wounded ever we're not broken there's something very solid deep within each person that they can access and it sounds like you had a spiritual realization that helped you you know access that that, yes, right. You could call it that. But another thing, because I tried before dance therapy. You probably heard about bio dance. Have you heard about this method? Uh, bio dance. I have not heard of that. I know about dance therapy and like expressive movement therapy and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's similar. Yeah, it's called bio dance. So I tried that and I, I realized like a lot of these energies of that suffering, that deep seated suffering. But I could not understand it. I was not able to understand. Even with the um, psychologist, she was she was the facilitator. She was explaining what those feelings were, but I couldn't understand at that point. So in a way, I think that it takes real life experience to understand certain things. The deep understanding about what life is, it takes experience. Uh, living life itself, just um, being part of the happening, I could say. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, in terms of just like if you were to sit in the therapist office, like in lieu of living your life, yeah, that'd be problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> what I've seen though is that so, and again, maybe this is one of those situations where it's both and because now there there are therapy philosophies that I don't really let's say ed, I don't adhere to. There might be some situations where you might instruct somebody to like override something that's going on in their psyche because it's just too overwhelming for them and they really can't tolerate it. And if that's the best that they can, if that if that's the only resource that they have, then fine. You know, like if somebody has to sit through a business meeting, all they want to do is like whack a pillow and say, F you, F you, F you. But at, at some point, something's got to give and th- there has to be, you know, like, my my orientation is such that therapy orientation um, as a realization process practitioner is, is, is such that there is a purpose or a function to every item of suffering that somebody has that's mentally generated and that it is possible for that person if that person decides okay well i you know i feel like i'm ready i want to i feel like i i want to stop suffering i want to um, I want to be happy. I want to transform my emotional state to to one that's more content. You can absolutely do that. And the reason that you can absolutely do that is because everything that you need to know in terms of undoing your wounding is right there. Like all of the content that you've stored throughout your lifetime is right there in that's like sort of like we could say locked into the tissues of your body, into your Constrictions or holding patterns. It's all right there. When somebody comes to me and they say, okay, I've got this constriction or holding pattern here in my body, I know immediately, I guess I'm always confident in their ability to heal because the information needed to heal that wound is like right there in the room, right? All that has to happen is for that to be known consciously and integrated and for that to happen in like a, a safe enough holding environment. Yeah, yeah, right. Every everything's within us. We hold all the answers in a way, but how do we access it and when that's the question? Because for most people that is something that can't be done even in one lifetime, if there's such a thing as lifetimes. <laughs> may may I offer how I would interpret part of your healing process? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So like the, let's say this big insight that you had about you're fine, you're perfect the way that you are, everything that happened is, is perfect in some way, you know, and just having that deep realization and then accessing, being able to access this quality of love that you talked about also. If something was held in your body as a pain, or if there were some like, uh, let's say, um, schema that like a like a like a program or conditioning that's that told you oh you've got to be nice around these people otherwise they're not going to like you and that's going to lead to this situation this intense situation like there was with mom so the fact that you you, you know you've you've written two books and one of them was your autobiography and the fact that you're sort of reprocessing all of your earlier experiences with that sense with 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 that sense of deep acceptance and love it's that, well, may I ask you, when you were doing that, were you accessing those old memories and sort of like re-experiencing things to some degree? 
Yes, I was re-experiencing them. Yes. And when you were doing that, were they being held in a space of love and acceptance? Mm, Absolutely. Yes. So there's some, there's a school of uh, therapy called coherence therapy, which would call that a, you know, in a way like a, a juxtaposition, you know, like, um, you, uh, there, there was one knowing that you had as a child, like this environment is unsafe. This is, you know, um, I don't like, I don't like being here. Um, and this newer understanding as an adult whereby, yeah, this is actually like, reality is actually quite safe. It's quite solid underneath. I can feel this, um, you know, I can, I can feel this, this deep sense of well-being that's just part of the universe. Yes, it was more like, yeah, it was non-personal, right, the experience. It was not attached to my personal experiences. No, it was beyond that, yeah. So let's take two examples. One example is your example, right, where you, you've got this deep acceptance and love sort of going on in the background that you can access. And then you can explore and re-experience all of the things that you went through in childhood in a way that number one feels safe and in a way that number two feels like that file gets to be updated because you're experiencing both things at the same time. Yes, these things happen. And yes, I am, I am loved. And like, I am love itself even. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think at that point I was experiencing love. Like I had that potential. I had that unconditional love to give So I was still operating under the belief of um, forgiveness. So I was in the position of forgiving somebody who did something to me. That changed. Now acceptance became understanding, but even if I disagree. So it goes beyond acceptance in a way. The process had me upgrading myself, like you put it, in psychological terms. Now I have a positive uh, experience that derived from a negative one. So I was able to create that, recreate something good out of something that was bad, let's say. But it was still mean. I, a person who is going through that, like watching everything, this is happening to me. Now it's it's just happening. Everything, it's life, just like the ocean, the trees, and everything else. Yeah. So, so what you're talking about is sort of like your uh, sense of self is becoming more refined and less. Well, how do I put this? This this sort of gets into non-dual phenomenology, or you know, the the way in which we process our feeling of self. Mm, Yes, I would say so. Yeah, the more I read about non-duality, I see I can experience that quality more now. It's hard to understand with the mind. And I try to understand with the heart, what we call heart. And when you come from the heart, it's a quality of presence, being, um, flow. Yeah, there's no attachment to uh, what's happening, but it's just, there's just a happening. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of folks who go through, um, let's say, a non-dual realization of one form or another, it's almost like there's something, I would say for the, probably the majority of humanity, there's, there's something in our consciousness that is always kind of like grabbing onto things and holding kind of tightly. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, oh, yes. and that's a feeling. It's something that you can feel in your body. And after a while of doing healing, you know, deep, deep enough healing work, transformative work, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that can be through meditation. It can be through therapy, through writing, through, um, you know, all sorts of different methods. 
So when we when we do enough of that, there's like this gradual sort of letting go of that deep grip that we have on our experience. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we don't feel we become non-emotional or anything like that, because nothing really changed. Like I'm still emotional, but not the difference now is it doesn't stick. The attachment loses its grip. I'm just fine with everything and calm and God, it's being experienced by everything that seems to be separate, but it's not. So that's the whole play, the whole game of life. When you really contemplate, I like the word you used, that, you know, that truth, fundamental truth, that's when everything becomes just joy. Like you can't help but just smile and, and yeah, that sense of peace. Yeah, right. And, and like that, so part of realization process is what you're talking about, basically being able to experience ourselves as our self, uh, self, let's say, with, with a capital S, like our authentic self. And paradoxically, that sense of authentic self, it doesn't grab on to much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Really, we don't cling so much to our experience, you know, anymore. And it's not, I'm not going to say that I don't want to get the impression that like I'm sitting over here like Ramana Maharshi or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know. (laughs) Well, I I feel like doing this type of work and, um, you know, embodiment meditation practices certainly helped me let go of a lot of things. There's one technique, I mean, because you asked in realization process, how do we experience this ground of being, right? How do we experience this unified ground? So um, just to, to circle back to that a little bit, one way is to release our mental grip on our experience. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And that release comes from a very deep place. And we can sort of, I guess in my experience, we can, we can have a sense of how deep that is once we start to experience, um, once we start to experience ourselves like just tuning into ourselves as our physical sensation, as energy sensation, and feeling like the really fine aspects of um, of energy, especially like the the central channel of energy in the body. Like, um, have you? Is that something that you've uh, had experience with, like from from yoga or anything like that? No, I never done yoga. I love dancing. So, like the um, like in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about this too. But it's like a, a middle pathway of energy that we can experience through the body so and certainly like you know are you like um you probably heard of chakras or energy points yes yes i don't know how we got to this notion of chakras but i imagine it was sort of like one monk talking to another monk being like hey when you go into meditation and you like you know you do this. Do you feel this energy around here? Oh, yeah, I do. Oh, what is it? That energy is, feels like it's associated with sexuality. Oh, yeah, I, f- I feel that too. Right. So I, I wonder if that's how it happened. I have no idea. When, when we experience certain, let's say, aspects of our personality or of our being, we experience love in the chest, we experience uh, power. We can experience power through a whole body, but also in our midsection. We experience sexuality and sensuality in our genital region. Right, so or in our pelvis, so th- there's so there is a rationale for these points of um, you know for for chakra points or uh, for you know systems that have these energy centers that are associated to different uh, different qualities. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So my final question to you: 
What are you grateful for in this very moment? What am I grateful for? I am grateful to live in awesome little town called Ipswich, Massachusetts. <laughs> I lived I lived in New York City for 15 years and then lived in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts for a year. And I was my my girlfriend and I were just both so done with with city life. No offense to anybody that likes cities. If you like a city, that's that's great. Then more power to you. But we were just uh, feeling really kind of burnt out. And so we needed to be in a place that was close to nature. And luckily, we found a really nice spot. That's wonderful. How do you define success? I feel like success means that you enjoy getting up in the morning and you enjoy going to sleep at night. Things <laughs> yeah. in between. <laughs> <laughs> wow, simple. What is to be strong? To be strong as a person, I would say to just to have the courage to know yourself. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life? So what comes to mind was, so I feel like, like you, I was in a phase for a while where I just tried to suppress things, hoping that they would just go away. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I've, I've had to learn that lesson, pro- you know, more than more than once. Um, but there was one day, I feel like I was taking uh, an immersion meditation class called the Finders Course, which I would, I would strongly recommend to people who are looking to... Uh, explore different contemplative or meditation methods. I don't get any money for saying that, by the way. It's something that, but, but it did change my life. But while I was taking that class, I feel like it was during that period where I had this insight that all the things I did where I tried to be good and I tried to be like the good boy, so to speak, that reality just didn't care. <laughs> Right. That wasn't going to really protect me from anything. It wasn't going to do what I thought it was going to do. Like I, I thought that I was some, I was on some sort of like uh, crusade to be good. It just like fell apart. So I, just, I realized that that just was not going to get me anywhere. And it was such a big part of my life that it was a difficult thing to see in that moment. And it was sort of like uh, I, I felt like I was on the butt of some, you know, some, some joke that was about me. <laughs> I. Right. Trying, right? Yeah, trying to be, to become something, right? We talk about what is our sense of self? Well, you can, there's, there's two ways to consider it. There's your conceptually oriented sense of self, which is sort of like all the need to be and do type of thoughts that are related to suffering. Like I need to be good. I need to be this. I need to be that. I need to be whatever, good looking. I need to be skinny. If you're in Brazil, maybe I need to have this kind of butt or that kind of butt like you talked about. Oh, yes. And and so those are like, that's all. And we try to like cram our, our being into that, um, that box of concepts, right. About what we need to be and do. And some of those sort of concepts or programs are more conscious. Some of them not, not as conscious, but the point is that all of that has to do with our conceptual sense of self. And so once that starts to get whittled down, then you can sort of have the experience that you talked about earlier, sort of just like just being and just feeling kind of fluid. And yeah, you will still like take appropriate action, but you just, you don't suffer as much. You don't cling to things. You'll still do things that are appropriate, but you won't like cling to things and suffer with what's going on around you because there's that deep sense of like, my being is at one with the ground of being, which we could call consciousness, we could call it love, we could call it this fundamental energy 
we could, I mean, it's all of that. Yes, yes, a thousand times. If you knew you would die soon, what change would you make in your life? So I'd probably like to plan for that. I'd probably have to make a list of everybody I wanted to thank. I would, you know, get my affairs in order. I'd probably, I'd have to make out a will and all that sort of thing. But in addition to that, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I would probably, okay, here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't <laughs> spend a lot of time traveling or doing doing things that are adventurous, quote unquote. Mm, right. I would probably try to write, I would probably try to consolidate everything that I've learned about healing into like a document and maybe give it to my girlfriend um, or give it to, or put it on the internet. Right, right. Mm, that's wonderful. Really great to hear that. So yeah, you would like to help people to heal. Yeah. I mean, what, what else? I mean, what else could I do? I probably, I don't know if I had, if I did have a lot of money, <laughs> I would probably donate it somewhere, but I don't have kids. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Do you believe in life after death? Uh, that's one thing I'm pretty dead certain about. Yeah, it's, I would I would say it's beyond belief. Okay, what kind of life? I think it probably varies depending on how much of a sense of conceptual, how much of a conceptual sense of self a person still has. Yeah, I think it probably varies um, from person to person as to what their experience is. Because because think about this, right? Like your experience of life in the world might be different from a random person off the street that it's probably highly likely that are deeply aware you 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 experience the sense of oneness or you know deep love or compassion you, you experience that as your baseline state i would say that most people probably experience a type of baseline anxiety as their normal state right right yeah. So, so, and, and they have a view of the world about needing to look, I need to survive also, you need to survive, right? But our experience is, might be a little bit different than somebody who's, you know, I don't know more, and I, because I, I want to say this without sounding like I'm being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, I, because, because honestly, can I, can I take like a detour for just a minute? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So for anybody that does have pain in their life, right, w without even having a spiritual realization, I'm going to invite all of your listeners to have um, a 100% compassionate view of their own pain and suffering. Okay. And here's how we can do that. So when we think about like, let's say touching the hot stove, right, we have pain. And so we stop touching the stove, right? <laughs> Pretty simple. And we say, oh, pain is good because it means that I need to like correct something because so something is happening that's hindering my survival or it's it's hurting me, right? So I need to like stop doing that. I need to stop touching the hot stove. Okay. And so a lot of times spiritual authors will make a distinction between pain versus suffering. Um, and oh, if you're suffering, it's because your ego is just being a jerk. And it means that you just have a lot of this con conditioning that makes you unenlightened and all that other jazz, right? So, and that's kind of like a, a bit of a pathologizing way to view human suffering, right? Right, right. And so another way to see human suffering is just as pain, right? 
Suffering is a little more complicated because it involves two types of pain. And so let me just define that for a second. So let's say that you had somebody who was touching the hot stove and they just kept touching the hot stove. So if you were looking at this person and you said, okay, they don't have any sort of organic issue going on. They don't have a brain injury. They're, they're an intelligent person. They, they've, they've got a good heart. Why are they, you know, what's making them do that? The only rational explanation for that is that there's, there is some profound purpose that the person is carrying out by continuing to touch the hot stove. The other point to that is that they must be doing something meaningful that um, if they stopped touching the hot stove, then it would, it's, it's almost like there's, put it this way, by touching the hot stove is part of their process of directly or indirectly solving some existential problem. And so like, there's the pain of touching the hot stove, but there's also the pain of stopping, let's say, applying a strategy that we have to some problem that involves getting hurt. So for instance, if, if you take somebody who has like, um, like they, they might keep getting into similar relationships with people that are, um, let's say, emotionally abusive towards them, and they can't, they can't really figure out why that is. That doesn't mean that their ego is being a jerk. It doesn't mean that whatever, whatever pathologizing way we want to see that. What it means is that somehow getting into that relationship, their unconscious mind, let's say, is trying to solve a problem by getting into that relationship. Maybe that person reminds them of a parent that they want to heal. Maybe that it reflects a relationship that they had early on with one of their with one of their parents, and that's the only thing that they that they know, and they would feel really uncomfortable being outside of what they know. Mm, right. So yeah, that's such an interesting um, insight. I heard something like um, the only way out is through. So that kind of makes sense to me. It kind of relates to what you're saying, I think. Well, if, if we want to say the only way out is is through. Yeah, absolutely. Because the only way out of that situation is to understand what problems we are trying to solve by doing unconscious things. And that makes me think about addiction. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we could, we could definitely draw parallels with addiction. It, exactly. Like, so that's how we can like depathologize human suffering because human suffering is just a, a more sophisticated form of pain. It's just that there's the pain of like touching the hot stove. And then there's the pain of letting go of the solution to some problem or dilemma that involves touching the stove, right? And so the, the question, I think there are methods within realization process to do this. There are methods within other uh, psychological um, schools of thought to do this. But the, the question is, what problem am I trying to solve? And we need to know that at a conscious experiential level to then make new decisions and be, be free from it. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. So I'm just wondering, the question, the, the original question was, what kind of life do you believe, do you think, do you know exists after this one? And, I, and you gave me this... Um, I gave you a very tangential answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's put it this way. So the more, let's say, unconscious problems and dilemmas that we might have, the more, let's say, um, healing and the more type of uh, healing work might need to happen 
in whatever subtle dimension our consciousness lands in, right? Um, and so based on the need for, you know, healing or rehabilitation or, um, you know, kind of like getting a break from the human condition, if our, if, our, if our life was particularly bad, if there was a lot of, you know, if there was a lot of suffering, it depends on the needs of the individual. I guess that's my answer. And it's not like, again, this is not a, like a, a merit-based version of heaven or something like that. It's just, I think my sense of it is that your consciousness is in a more, let's say, fluid state that is based largely on uh, your self-concept or your your deepest sense of self. Let's let's put it that way. And it's sort of like you know, it, the afterlife can be a rehab. It can be like uh, maybe an educational experience. It can be a planning phase for your next lifetime. Th- those are, I mean, those are things that I'm pretty confident about. Um, but I mean, the, the, the thing that I am the most confident about is that our consciousness does, it doesn't just wink out of existence when we die. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. What are three things about life, you know, for sure? What are three things I know about life for sure? Oh boy. Um, life is literally made of intelligence. That's one thing. So, I mean, and that's when you say no, for sure, let me just put that, let me just bracket that by saying that's something that's one of those things that you you know, but you don't know how you know. It's sort of like a, a deeply felt sense that I have and that I don't think that anybody else needs to like adopt that as a belief. It's something that you can, you know, you can experience if you if you want to, that there's sort of this intelligence that pervades everything. So, or at least we could say at least it pervades all of our experience, but it, it feels true to say that it pervades all of life. So another thing, another thing that's absolutely true or that I know for sure. So this is something that I've been coming around to more and more, and it just feels more and more true, especially working just the more clients I work with and the more I do my own sort of inner work, um, the more it seems clear that there there is a type of, even if this is going to sound really controversial to some people, <laughs> I don't mean it in a controversial way. Even if we totally like destroyed the environment and made the planet uninhabitable for everything except cockroaches, even if we did that, there would still be an innocence, like a profound innocence that lies at the heart of the human condition. What I mean by innocence is that like, I guess this this goes back to what we we're talking about before is like, we were doing our best to sort of, we're, we're sort of mucking around trying to solve problems and we are enacting solutions to those problems without really deeply understanding what those problems are. So even like a multi-multi-billionaire who is doing things to like totally destroy the environment, well, are they acting out some by having to be on top of everything? Are they enacting are they enacting some need for approval that's just a bottomless pit of suffering because they keep thing that's just not working, right? So and it's like maybe they get a little bit of validation or something when they get their next yacht or whatever it is. But there's still something profoundly, I think, innocent about that, it, which doesn't negate the fact that we could really destroy the planet for a lot of life on Earth. <laughs> Believe me, I do not want that to happen. But it's like this notion of uh, holding two truths, you know, like on one hand, we can do a lot of damage on the other human be- there there is this deep innocence at the heart of every human being in the same way there's there's innocence um at the heart of like an elephant or like uh you know a, a cat or a dog same quality i like that truth of yours yeah you know we're talking about holding things lightly you know not being not not having too tight a grip on things 
Right. The judgment, assumptions. Right. Yeah. And like, okay. So another thing that I know for sure, don't <laughs> yeah. the second one <laughs> is that in my experience, the taking a compassionate problem solving approach to life is, has been the most helpful in terms of getting things done. What that means is that you know, you're you're not looking at things in terms of what is right, what is wrong, how do I be righteous, how do I like, you know, destroy things that I think are bad. It's more like and and like we can do that even with ourselves. Like like you said so beautifully before, like trying to like you were trying to just suppress all your emotional content, uh, trying to make it go away. So in a way, that's that's like taking an adversarial tone to our experience and to life is that just is a world of pain. So that's so the, I guess the other part of that is that taking a non-adversarial approach to life, I mean, that's what leads us into the experience of non-duality. You could even say that, that that in and of itself, just taking that attitude of having a non-adversarial tone to your experience and to life, that is non-duality. Yes, right. I love the one of the things that I like also about the Buddhist tradition. They say one thing about the suffering of the world. How can I help? What can I do to uh, make it better? No judgment, no assumptions. How can I help? Yeah, that, that's perfect. Yeah, beautiful. Like that's the compassionate problem solving lens. I'd say it's not like the moralistic lens where you're trying to like strike down the the like <laughs> strike down the crap in yourself on the yeah. you know the quote unquote bad stuff. It's more like, well, okay, yeah, there's suffering here. There's this little pocket of suffering here. How do I help that? Oh, there's this, this this little pocket of suffering in me. What can I do about that? Let's just let's just sit down and like ponder, you know, or like reflect upon what we can, yeah, what we can do to to heal or or help things get better, you know. Somehow, um, yeah, we even see that happening. This contradiction with the peace activism or activists that then they become actually angry, and now they have this warlike activism against war. Right. It ultimately doesn't help. And the thing is, you know, we can we can actually feel that in our own body. Like when we're let's say uncompassionate towards ourselves, and we say, "Oh, I'm such an this or that," right? We can feel that in our own body. Uh, we can feel that as pain. It reg- our body will register that as as pain. You know, a lot of times in in the spiritual domain, the body gets bad uh, a bad rap or bad bad reputation. But the thing is, our there's there's also this notion of like the wisdom of the body. It's it's true. The body doesn't lie. We try to hide with our minds, but it doesn't work. It has been a meaningful conversation, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for your contribution to well being. Yeah. But you know what? Thank you for having me on this podcast. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? So my, uh, you can go to my website, which is realizationconsulting.com. So I am still in the process of getting some articles and such up there. But uh, what you can do, and as, as well as guided meditation videos and that sort of thing. But what you can do, I mean, if you, especially like, I feel like the people that I tend to work with most commonly are ones that are like meditators that run into some sort of block in their meditation, or they're, they're people that are spiritually oriented that have some sort of psychological trauma that they want to work with and like nothing else has worked. Those are the, I would say the two sort of cohorts that I, I somehow tend to attract, <laughs> but uh, people can schedule like a, you know, a, a free half hour and we'll do some realization process work. 
Uh, we'll do some like realization process meditation or, you know, we can we can get into your situation and just discuss what, what you know, what could potentially be helpful. So, yeah, that's totally free of charge. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon, Valeria. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Michael Leiden, please visit his website at www.realizationconsulting.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.